Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. and disposition. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we're going to be discussing division and disposition when it comes to military activities. But first, let's have a chat about some awesomeness that is going down here. Now, this is going to be a fairly, you know, self-centered intro, but it's it's been a fairly fun time, so I kind of wanted to share as you know, I think I've discussed it before, that we have a local league that is going on, like a tournament ship prep um, league. And there's some very good people in it. Like, we have one dude in this who is... Uh, it, Soren, actually. You've you've uh, met him before. He's been on the show. He's an amazing player. I'm not sure if I've ever met anybody who said they beat him, uh, for instance. I don't know where he came from. He's some sort of elfin sprite that entered this realm in order to whoop our butts at, at Warhammer 40k. But... He's fantastic. And one of the people who trains with him very regularly is a cat named Lee. And Lee and I have been having games, and he plays Custodes. Custodes is a very dangerous army, and he plays them extremely well. And so uh, we had two games together in the open part of this tournament, and he, he whooped me. I mean, just whooped me in these games. He was fantastic. And you know, I was kind of struggling to figure out what I was going to do differently. But then as I refined my list, as I was kind of checking other sources and bouncing ideas off of people, I came to a, a list that I thought was, was pretty good. It's a, it's a free blade list, knights, and it has each of the smaller groups, you know, one bigger knight, one castorus, right, and the rest are armagers. And each of these you know, groupings has a faction bonus that benefits whatever the battlefield role is. So I've got Strike and Shield on the ones who are supposed to get up front and like get into that melee very first off. The wave that comes after them are the ones with the, I think it's Noble Combatants, and that's uh, just an absolutely brutal ability. And you've got uh, the, you know, the Armager Helverins in the background with Hunters of Beasts, and it works out pretty darn well. Um, and each, again, each of them has a faction bonus that benefits them. So I went against him this last time, and this was for the actual bracketed stuff. So whoever won advanced into the into the finals here, and it was a fantastic game. I mean, I've had some really good games while I've been playing 40k, and I've had some good games while playing like Axis and Allies and and other things along those lines, but oh my goodness, (laughs) y'all. This game was fantastic. Um, I mean, it just was, it was back and forth. It was clean for one thing. Like both of us were, were certain of the other person u- using their rules properly. Cause I mean, we had played together before, you know, we had, we were using the dice tray so that there's no cocked die. Everybody kind of, everything was on the up and up. Attitudes were good. Sportsmanship was good. And the game itself was so back and forth. It was crazy. 
and we both would have really good rounds and then the other one would have a really good round and we were just like pressing back and forth fighting over the center objective which is where my knights wanted to be for like renew, renew the oaths i believe is the the secondary that i had taken for that the final score was 79 74 oh fantastic game i mean like the score reflects how close it was and again it was just so back and forth and by the end of it we're both we're both just beaming like, even though he lost, he was still had a smile on his face because we both had a great time. Like, it was just a fun game. So, Lee, I don't know if you listened to the show, but thank you again. Thanks again, bud. That was a, a really, really fun game, and I look forward to our next one. But in terms of physical fighting, I have been able to return to the field. There were some issues that were keeping me from fully experiencing uh, kind of the fighting thing, but especially the smoke. As I talked about, I think, last episode, campaigning in the smoke is not good for me. <laughs> not good for my lungs. So I wasn't doing a whole lot of campaigning during that. But now it's been cool for a little bit, and I'm able to, you know, get out there and do some more fighting. It's fantastic. But the other thing that has me fighting at the moment is that the Gladiator Club recently started up. And I, I think we've talked about on the show uh, this, this club over at the high school that's designed to prepare young people, prepare uh, teenagers to step onto the city league field, step onto the realm field. One of the things that I had noticed as a kid was when you're, you know, 15, 16 years old and stepping onto a field where you've got vets, you know, fully grown adults who are veterans, it can be very intimidating, very intimidating. And, and that's unfortunate because high schoolers have the ability to really excel. Their, their bodies are still growing. And so they can kind of form themselves to something. They've got that youthful energy and bounceability, I guess. Like, think about it. Like, younger people just bounce better. They hit the deck, they get back up. The older we get, if we hit the deck, we stay down there for longer. Like, our bounce disappears. So they got their bounce. They've got their, their natural energy, their natural athleticism. And if they're learning these things, they can really stick a lot better. Adults, like, once you're a full-grown adult, you can still learn, right? You can still apply skills to this. But it's going to be harder than it will be when you learn younger. I mean, look at stuff like American Ninja Warrior, right? They recently allowed teenagers to start competing and they are dominating the field. You know, these veterans are having to scramble to, you know, defend their, their honor in this particular case as these 15-year-olds are just flying through these courses. And again, when you're, when you're looking at that, you're combining good training with youthful athleticism. Easy enough. And so it's just a, I think it's a good idea. And again, to, to prepare them mentally, prepare them skill-wise to jump out there with the, with the adults. I mean, we've got one guy out there who's just tearing it up. And I'm so proud of him. Like, he, he is just an impressive force of nature. And he came from the Gladiator program. You know, he trained there. And, and he trained other people, too. And so it, it, it's, it's good. I mean, it's, and I think he's come back. Yeah, he's, he's here uh, uh, teaching with us as well. He was just gone the, the first week I was there. But he's going to be there helping instruct the next generation which was the whole point when we founded the club. So it's, it's nice to be out fighting, absolutely. Like, it, it, for my own sake, it's, out, it's nice to be out to be fighting. But it's even better to look at my realm and see it doing well and to look at this club, this, this club that's very dear to my heart, and see it doing well, too, because that means the lifeblood of Stygia is healthy. And that's the most important part of this. Like, I, of course, I like being good at fighting. Of course, I enjoy winning. Who doesn't? But really, what brings me pure joy at the end of the day is knowing that the organizations that I love, 
that I am deeply involved with are doing well and everybody's having a good time. So um, I feel like I tangented ever so slightly there, but we're going to come back together when we move on to our first section talking about division and disposition. done 85 episodes so far here at the Art of Wargaming, and a fair few of those have covered things that are not specifically related to fighting, either tactically or strategically speaking. And, you know, these are things to deal with camps, or with marches, or various leadership things, uh, things that aren't, you know, we're going to move this way and this way, kind of analyzing of, of tactics. But the reason for this is... Uh, to be really good at what we're doing is for a lot of us to also step into the role of leadership. Now, some of us, leadership in, in various levels is is different, right? It's different for different people. Not everybody is going to be the person out front who is doing the, the public speaking. You need, for instance, uh, speechwriters, uh, people who do marketing, people who do, uh, get, you know, getting the snacks and the drinks for everybody. And each of these people may be in an area that, I mean, like the person who's doing the snacks and drinks might want to, you know, they might aspire to something else. But in terms of the overall effort, right, there's not everybody is going to be doing the same thing. This is not to say that we shouldn't strive for our full potentials, but not everybody is going to be a general, right? Not everybody has the skills or the disposition, right? Division and disposition for such a thing. Um, you know, some of us are armchair generals, like yours truly. I've also done different leadership things. You know, Thumbs has done leadership things. So this, even if you're not commanding the entire army, just being in charge of one realm or one part of a unit, any of these things can also come in handy. So what we're, we're talking about in some of these other episodes are ways to deepen our wargaming experience by affecting the things around it. Right. And so that's the reason why we do some of these episodes that are not specifically related to strategy or to tactics. Um, but let's get into it. All right. So when we're talking about a division in this particular episode, we're going to have to work through it contextually because the translator for this edition used the same word for um, like dividing things. And for a division, which is, you know, a part of an army, it's a, a way of organizing, you know, numbers within the army. And these might be separate words, impression, but in English, they are the same. Uh, so again, one of them is how we divide things, how we kind of uh, break them apart. And the other one is, uh, again, a very specific level of the organization. So I'll try to make sure to point that out as we're going along, because we're using the same word, but in totally different ways. But when we're talking about dividing thing, the division here, we're talking about ways that we're going to organize our force. And this may be in battalions or squads or platoons. If we're thinking in terms of some sort of conventional force, it may be organized differently if we're doing some sort of asymmetrical pattern. But however it's done, this organization needs to occur during a time of peace. Right? These, these are things that must be decided upon during a time of peace. These things don't just kind of materialize on the battlefield, typically, or on campaign. We get what we practice for. 
And so if we are looking to kind of embed these things, it's, it's good to train this way. I know units, for instance, that will go and they will you know, train with each other and they'll train in certain sizes. And if they get together at an event, they make sure to do some maneuvers and get used to the way people are moving. And maybe they've trained to operate as separate cells or as one large uh, organization, but knowing which direction we're supposed to go, knowing what kind of numbers we're supposed to break down into is huge. And again, must be done before the fighting starts. Now, the next uh, thing we're looking at is the form of the disposition, okay? And these are the elementary tactics that are taught in this time of peace, right? Training. And for us, that's what we do off-field, off-season. Are we doing pell work? Are we doing any sort of physical training? Are we doing stretches or forms? Uh, watching videos? Whatever are the way we are choosing, whatever level we're choosing to keep our training up is important because what we do in time of peace will become what we do in time of quote-unquote war. You know, if we practice our forms when we're off-field, when we're, you know, at home, in our time of peace, well, if we do that dutifully, then those maneuvers are going to come much more easily to us than if we just go onto the field expecting to know what to do. Uh, somebody who uses a pell, they're going to know how their weapon responds to striking and how to throw effective combos. They're not just shadow boxing. You know, forms are great for getting maneuvers down, but when it comes to really feeling the impact that we're going to be dealing with, the momentum that we're going to be dealing with, uh, actual pell work is superior, no doubt. And so people who dedicate to that are going to have a far better understanding of how to throw combos and how the weapon responds to hitting an object. And I could go on, you know, PT is, is one of those other things too. You know, training for endurance or training for some sort of muscle strength can only do good within a combat sport. And this is for everybody across the board. And again, the, the things that are given by using these, these off-field activities, doing this training off-field, again, this embeds something positive in us. But these are nigh impossible things to start to influence once we are in a war, once we are you know, at an event, or once we are at a tournament. Like once we are there, whatever we did off-field, whatever habits we hid, had in our time of peace, whatever training we may have done, that is suddenly going to become kind of set in stone, at least for the moment. We can then look how it works and see what we can change for next time. But that's it. So what we come in with is what we come in with. So you know, we want to be bringing our best. We want to be bringing our most trained, our most elite, our most efficient selves. And that's where the training comes in. And all of this sometimes decides the battle before it begins. If we have good division, if we have a, a team that knows what they're doing and they're well-trained, they still have good gear, all that, so, you know, this could decide if they were going against a ragamuffin crew, you know, stuff that was just kind of stitched together, folks who weren't really training off-field. There's going to be a huge difference, huge difference in the way these forces perform. And the way we switch that to our side, of course, is by using division and our disposition to our advantage and influencing them in the ways that we can. And the, what, what is going to be required of either of these things and what is going to be required of, if you recall our episode on the three arms last time, that also really very much factors into both of these things as well. And 
again, meta changes, technology changes. And so, you know, these are also going to change what we need in terms of those three arms and what we need in terms of their disposition and division. You know, the first one is the proportion of them. You know, during the age of the horse, it was good to have a higher amount of calf than it would be during the time of, of Clausewitz's writing, just because of the utility of them. The utility, the, the ranking that they had on the, on the battlefield, if you will, these things contributed to the proportion there being uh, something awesome. You wanted to have more of it. Whereas, you know, in Clausewitz's time, artillery, it's all about the cannons. It's all about making the explosions over there. And so this proportion swelled at that point. You think about the English longbowmen. Okay, we're going back to an artillery idea and back and forth, back and forth. And so, you know, the, these changes are going to affect what proportions we have going on. They're also going to affect the functions. You know, at, at one point in, in history, an all cavalry formation could absolutely have functioned. And then as time went on, it became less and less and less useful, uh, less and less effective to use an all cavalry force. And, and the need to pull in from different sources, the need to combine the three arms together becomes a bit more. And so that function all over the place changes, you know, depending on, on those factors. And then of course the flexibility, you know, for again, if we're looking at Clausewitz's time, we're looking at fairly rigid structure because of the nature of the artillery and how slow it moved. The armies kind of had to plan their movements around where they wanted their artillery to be and of course where it actually was. And so the flexibility at that time was far less than if you're dealing with, you know, archers as being your third arm. Trebuchets are kind of the same vein as the cannons. Uh, those of us who play 40k, perhaps our three arms are far more flexible or functional depending on what kind of army we play. But these things are, are always things that we need to look at in terms of meta. What's working? What is working on the field? What is working on the tabletop? I'm not saying that we all need to be meta chasers necessarily. You know, keeping up on every new report and having the, the slickest, newest weapons. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I mean, if that's, if that's the way that we choose to play our games, that's the way we choose to play our games. But we can still do plenty well by just paying attention and just noting the changes, noting where the strengths are with whatever the situation may be, whether it's the addition of the game that we're playing or whether it might be the next year with the newest tech at the war game on the field that we play. It's good to pay attention and shift with this as it's needed because the whole purpose of any of this is to create a useful and prepared force, to create a useful and prepared self uh, for that matter. Because if we know what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to do it, if we know our moves, you know, like I said, if we've been doing forms and pell work, if that is ingrained in our muscles, and we don't even have to think about it, it's not a matter of saying, oh, I'm going to do this and this and this, your body already knows, because it's done it. And of course, this is all fine and dandy for the self, for doing this uh, you know, by ourselves and being able to look after ourselves, we can have pretty good control over what's occurring there. But the larger the force be, uh, gets, the more effort becomes required in this. You know, if it's just you and a couple of your friends, okay, well, we get together, we do some practices, maybe, you know, I, at one point, me and a lot of my realm or my unit mates were living together. 
You know, we were all underneath one roof, which means we could train anytime we wanted to or watch YouTube videos or discuss theory. We had that ability right there. And it was also because we were relatively small and we could have us and, you know, the other uh, unit mates that we had come over. But as we got larger and larger, and especially as those of us who, you know, had a thirst for something a little bit more outside of the, the kind of realm unit, you know, moved out there, we started seeing different necessities. We've talked before about the Urukai and about how they were very functional early on because they may have had large numbers, but they also did a lot of drill. You know, they go to an event and they would always have a little bit of drill somewhere. And it's, that's starting to come back. That's starting to come back. But with the numbers that existed then, it was necessary. And it paid off on the field. You could see it. When it was working well, it worked well. Whereas if we're working with smaller forces, obviously it becomes more about you know, working with each other and then being able to move in an intuitive way. Less a, you know, a designed sort of premeditated sort of way. So with this idea of dealing with the larger forces, let's now go to division. And more division, okay, when we're, when we're dealing with our, our large unit, when we're dealing with division of how many parts to make that larger unit, that army into, right? And then what to do with those parts, what we need to do with those proportions that we were talking about. All of this comes down to thinking about the division of the army. And the more we divide it, it gives us more freedom of movement we don't have to worry about swinging around a, a large force that has to be, remain kind of consistent with each other, it can break off. You know, we can, we can be doing the, the system that was used so famously by Napoleon, where you had the, the various formations that were moving out and engaging on multiple fronts that had all three arms represented within them. And we, can, we can get to that point, but the more divisions we have, we may have that greater freedom of movement, but it also becomes more unmanageable. Because if everybody's directly underneath our command, they're in the same area, it's very easy to give orders at that point. It's very easy to say, you go there, you go there, because everybody's together. The more spread out we become, the more pieces break off and go their own way, well, now it becomes infinitely harder to move as one force to be under same, underneath the same leadership. There may be an overall plan, but the more we're divided, the more unmanageable it kind of is in the moment. The less the overall leader is going to have control and more the people who are in charge of those divisions are going to have control. And a lot of times this happens subconsciously. Within a larger unit, we might have ranks. There might be different positions that are specifically to deal with these larger groups of the whole. But most of the time, especially if we're dealing with just general fights on the field, I notice this happening just intuitively, instinctually. You know, there'll be a person somewhere and whether or not it's a confidence in their stride or a loudness to their voice, whatever the case may be, they end up being like a de facto leader for a side or for a, for a chunk. And so they are able to move off on their own and lead. And if they're good, if, if they've got good timing and good advice, well, then their side might be doing well, and that contributes well. And sometimes they're not. But that's the, the overall arching command has no control over that, has no control over what the individual's commanders do. So more unmanageable. However, you can move around a lot better. So we typically have this division, especially we're dealing with an army of Clausewitz's size. 
And if we've got units of this size, great. Or, or teams of this size, we can also think of it this way. But at least there, so there's the left side, right? And then we have our center and then our right. Behind those, we have our reserve left and our reserve right. In front of that, we have our advance guard. And then behind that, we have our rear guard. And then finally, our command section, wherever that may be, whether it's situated in the center or off to one of the flanks, more toward the rear. That's up to the individual commander. But those are the areas that we're, we're thinking about. These are typically the eight areas that need to have somebody in charge of them. And if the teams are small enough, each of these roles is filled by an individual person. Okay. Um, and the, the larger it gets, the more these roles may be filled by other folks. Sometimes you may not have an advanced guard until you start getting more and more people on the field. You may not have enough people for a rear guard. Obviously, a command position comes when you've got a lot of people on the field and you do have that center bus driver, if you will. And these are the things we're looking at. And so when Clausewitz is talking about this, again, these gigantic sizes, you have the core, like the different cores, and they make up um, underneath, like directly underneath the general. And each of those is divided into divisions. See, this is where it gets complicated. And each of those divisions is divided in, into brigades. And brigades are supposed to be units that are able to be commanded by one person. Not necessarily everybody all the way, like all the time. We're not talking squad level or even platoon level. It's still much larger than that. But it's one person is able to oversee all of it with help, but without the need of like a general staff to filter through things as much, especially at this point. And so these brigades are where a lot of this freedom begins. And so if the divisions are, are where the actual freedom is, well, then these brigades are kind of the feelers going out. They're the ones who are acting upon this freedom. And the more freedom that they have, the more manageable that they are. We keep going back to that. And so if we're, we can, we can kind of draw a few conclusions from this. The first one is that if a whole has too few members, it is unwieldy. And by members, I mean different pieces that come off of it. If it's just one big blob, it's unwieldy. We can't do much with that. So too few, big blob, unwieldy. The second one is that if the parts of the whole body are too large, the power of the superior will is weakened. So if we have too many parts, if we have far more division than is necessary, then the will that is driving the force, the general, is not able to be as effective because their command has been watered down at this point. And the third thing that we can derive from this is that with every additional step, an order must pass, it loses force, and the transmission takes longer. If I'm just able to hand you a slip of paper that says, okay, this is what I need you to do. You're like, okay, open slip of paper. You know what you need to do. That was two seconds worth of me to you. Now let's say that, you know, I'm up a level, that I'm a, a captain. And so I say, okay, I'm going to hand this order to your lieutenant and the lieutenant's going to give you the order. Still pretty okay. Now, the further we start to move up from captain to major to colonels to generals, each different step that these things have to go through, each bureaucracy that it has to deal with, it loses the force. So it loses the impact that it's supposed to have. And of course it takes longer. 
So if we're trying to wield that larger force, that's part of the reason why it becomes unwieldy because trying to manage it as the large force that it, that it is without dividing it down into sub kind of divisions, it's entirely too hard to use it. Now within each of these divisions or within each of these different parts of the army, it is up to kind of the tactical situation and the general who is apprising or appraising that tactical situation to decide what the different combinations of arms are going to be within those cores or divisions. And this is entirely subjective on the tactics that are occurring at the time, the strategies, the meta. You know, at certain times, it was far better to have divisions that were exclusive. You know, this division is exclusively archers. This one is exclusively infantry, infantry exclusively spearmen. And there are absolutely times in history where that has worked out perfectly fine. And at other times of history, much like the time that we're talking about with Clausewitz, it was that the intermixing, having a combination of the different arms all within one division, was the vogue. Because it enabled each one to work as a mini army in and of itself, and not need to, okay, we need to bring up the artillery to this side. Oh, we need to bring it over there too. Well, using the artillery suddenly becomes cumbersome. It suddenly becomes something that is not worth the effort that is being put into it. Now, if each side has its own artillery, or able to go and set up and be where they need to be when they need to be there, well, that becomes excellent. That becomes that freedom of movement that we're talking about. However, comma, if we wanted, if we needed to do a massive artillery barrage to break through somewhere, trying to get all that artillery back in one place is going to be far more difficult at that point. So there's a balance that goes back and forth. Most of the units that we're going to see in Belagarth or in, in something like that are going to be mixed. You know, the archers are going to be working with the infantry, which are going to be working with the cav and the, the pole arms. Everything is going to be working together. There's not a whole lot of division between the various elements. With something like 40k, there is. We have individual units, and while they some of those might be mixed, a lot of times, you know, this is infantry. It says as much on the data sheet that that is infantry. You know, that's a vehicle. And so it's fairly exclusive there. We don't get that, that same mixture there. Now, we may have mixed detachments. Absolutely. Like, uh, you know, and I think that really works for a lot of armies to have that, that heavy support in the background. The cavalry kind of working the flanks or working the opportunities, and then the infantry going and occupying and doing what infantry does. You know, a lot of them work well there. You now, this last time that TF and I played, we were both playing very infantry-heavy, very fast-moving armies. Our artillery section was non-existent. I had a couple of obliterators out there. That was it for me. He had some eradicators on his side. That was it for him. We didn't really have large artillery sections to speak of. It was a high-mobility game for us. And that was the tactical situation. That was the army that we were using. So this really depends, right? Combination of arms depends not only on, you know, the tactical situation, but also the game that we're playing, whether it be, you know, physical or intellectual or, or even what that looks like. So let's say that we have this division down. We have a nice, effective way of making sure our forces are able to maximize their opportunities and maximize their potential. 
Well, how do we get there? What is the disposition? How do we maneuver the disposition to our advantage? And this kind of comes back to one of the themes that we've been talking about, which is the idea of morale coming into the fight already with the, the tools that we need to win it. And there's a lot of things that affect this, as we've spoken of many times. But there's three different situations that an army finds itself in, and each of these situations is affected and affects disposition in its own way. These three situations are being in quarters, being on the march, and being in camp. So for us, for those of us who do physical wargaming, being in quarters is being back in our hometowns, in our houses or our apartments, wherever we live, that's being in quarters. In camp is when we're actually at an event, and of course we're someplace that is not on the field, in camp. And then on the march is typically on the field. You know, where you only get into battle typically, or you only want to be getting into battle if you're on the march. If you're in camp and you're getting into battle, your pickets didn't do their job. And if you're in your quarters going to battle, then you're the one being invaded at that point. So, but these are the three situations that we find ourselves in. And all three of these things feed into the overall war effort. In terms of, you know, if we're talking about quarters, and, and, you know, if we're talking about Clausewitz's time, just because the army wasn't on the road didn't mean that it was like, okay, everybody back to your houses, it's cool. No, you, if you had a standing army, they were still, okay, you have to go to the barracks and you have to be in quarters. And so those quarters, of course, need to be clean. They needed to be well-maintained and there needed to be good training that was going on there. All the gear needed to be good. There's a lot of stuff that went into making quarters effective. You know, as earlier this episode, we had talked about in times of peace, making sure that we were training, that's going to happen in quarters. In camp, well, as we already discussed, you know, if there's rain, if there's sickness, if there's too much heat, if there's too much rain, too cold, I think I already said rain. I think I said rain twice. It can rain a lot. <laughs> that's, that's why I said it twice. We're going to pretend that's why I said it twice. There's a lot of different environmental factors that can play into whether or not a camp is good or bad for the army that is occupying it. And then on the march, it can affect all sorts of things. Uh, again, the times that we're talking about are actually being in the field. You know, really wet conditions make it really hard to move from place to place. Really hot conditions make it dangerous to move from place to place. So these things are all going to uh, kind of pool into how effective our army is going to be. And the security of our army should be paramount in all of these things, making sure that we are secure in quarters, on the road, and in camp is paramount. And even, let's, let's talk about this in not so much a, a gaming sort of term, but let's talk about this in a camping sort of term. We want to make sure that our camps are safe. Now, I know at the smaller events, it's cool. It's, I mean, it's honestly a pretty good idea to make sure that everything is kind of open. Everybody's kind of one big unit, I guess. When the fighting is done, there's a couple bigger fires that people are around. It doesn't matter what unit or realm you're from. Everybody's kind of mingling together. And that's the scene there. But as the events get larger and larger and larger, it becomes wiser to control who's around, to make sure that the people who are around are quality people that we want in our camps. Because unfortunately, even in something as positive as what we do, there are still thieves out there. There are still people who do not 
come with goodwill. And so making sure that we're controlling who is coming in and out and making sure that we're aware of that sort of traffic is more important. And so making sure that, you know, tents are put in a certain way so that it's very obvious if somebody is coming into the area from anywhere else than the kind of the main entrance. A lot of times we, you know, string up uh, some sheets or bring in some temporary fencing to mark off some territory that way. Securing our army in camp is pretty easy. And it, I, I think it should be, uh, I think it should definitely be indulged in. And as much as we can, we should try to exist without inconvenience. Because then we can focus uh, fully on our fighting. And this inconvenience comes in a lot of different forms. It can come in being hungry, or being tired, or being sick, or having issues that are going on off-field, that are then messing with our minds on-field. I know personally there's like a, when I'm going through my pre-warm-up, part of that is trying to exile all of my thoughts from the rest of the day and leave them on the side of the field, leave them maybe even the car even before I got to the field so I can focus fully on where I am and what I am doing because you know, without that, I'm not going to perform as well, just like everybody else. And so there's a lot of inconveniences that can slow us down. I'm not saying completely abandon one's responsibilities. Like, I mean, if you have a sick kid at home, obviously, we got to have our cell phone on, got to make sure we check into that. But as much as we can, as much as we can in the moment, it's going to lead to a more successful engagement. So wrapping up this idea of the security of our army and also kind of the wrapping up uh, this, this uh, yammering part of the episode so we can actually get on to the interview with a truly quality individual, uh, let's just say this about disposition and about the security and existence of an army. Now, some of these things that he lists are applicable to something like Bell, some of them are only applicable in a historical setting, and some of them are applicable to 40k. So we're going to go through them and real, qu real quick just kind of identify which is which. The facility of subsistence, which is to say where we're getting our food from, whether it's a, you know, a food truck or a, uh, another sort of vendor or a food plan, or whether or not we're bringing our own, how we're preparing it, all of that is absolutely important to the existence and security of the army, well, no matter what we're doing. Whether we're doing some camping with some, you know, SCA or some Bellegarth, whether we're at a tournament or in a historical setting, facility of, or facility of subsistence, huge. And then in that same idea, the second one is providing adequate shelter for our troops. You know, can they remain cool on hot days? Can they make sure that they're warm on cool days? Are they staying dry? Are we staying sanitized? There's a lot of things to consider there when we're dealing with shelter for the troops. And this is massive when we're dealing with the existence and security of our army. The third one is security of the rear. And we kind of talked about this with the idea of making sure that our camps can, are a little controlled with who can come in and out. But this is mostly going to be a historical thing. You know, they're, they're trying to uh, make sure that they're not getting night raids. But, but even for us, you know, if we, if we want to abide by this principle, making sure that there's no real way to get around. You know, having the back of our camp to a river or to a mountain, something that is going to be impassable without really noticing it and without very much impeding our opponent. Some sort of security to the rear. Open country to the front. Easily seen. Nothing hides. <laughs> we, we can use our cav as we need to. That open country to the front is going to lead us to not be in a situation where we're going to have surprises. We don't want surprises. 
And this is one of the ways we avoid that. The fifth one is having a uh, position that we're occupying that it, it is in broken country itself. So if we can have open in front of us, security to the rear, and then we ourselves are within you know, some sort of marshes or forest or hilly area or some combination of two or three of these, whatever we can do to break up country and, and make it harder for our opponent to be able to come in and easily dislodge us from wherever we are. Well, in that same idea, number six, having the strategic points that are supporting us and supporting them as well. In the time of Clausewitz, that would mean making sure that we have higher areas near us where our artillery can look down and watch and make sure that they have control. And of course, those artillery places have to be within our realm of control so that we don't lose them for absolutely no reason. But this is very important as well. And then you know, lastly is a suitable distribution of troops. Do we have all of our bases covered here? And this is very important in something like 40K, where we're not just dealing with normal formations, we're also dealing with objectives that we're trying to get on the board. And also we are able to make sure that we're not getting hit from behind or from the sides by making it so that we cannot be flanked by somebody's ability that allows them to, you know, come in nine inches away from somebody. And so between these dispositions and these divisions, we're able to better control and control the quality of our armies. And now let's talk to somebody who really knows how to maximize both of these principles. Today to talk with us about something he knows very well as having been a leader for a good portion of his career, this idea of division and disposition is a good friend of mine and really a paramount a paramour of our community. Uh, this is Sir Rem. Rem, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, I, I think that, uh, yeah, we're going to have a good conversation today. But, but before we get into that, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your um, war gaming background. <laughs> uh, well, uh, probably like a, a lot of your listeners, I grew up um, playing RTS games when I was younger, StarCraft, Warcraft. Um, that was kind of my first introduction to war gaming when I was younger, obviously. Um, Risk and uh, things along the lines of any kind of warfare-related re game. I was very enthralled with that as a kid. Um, you know, and then as I got older, the Total War series was a really big um, influence and interest of mine. And then as I grew older, um, you know, first-person shooters became really popular with Halo. And uh, that's kind of where a lot of my interests lie in gaming, like in, um, you know, virtual gaming or tabletop gaming. That's kind of where I sit. Um, but I've been in Belagarth, which is a medieval combat society for 12 years. Um, so that's kind of where a lot of my hands-on application, uh, working with other people in a real-life space, um, you know, when it comes to a wargaming experience, that's where a lot of my experiences pull from. And, uh, like, your, uh, your tenure in Belagarth, have you uh, lived in uh, multiple realms? And I, I'm pretty sure you've been in, I know the one unit you've been in, but have you been in multiple those of those as well? Funny enough, I'm kind of a, an interesting outlier. You know, I live in Boise, Idaho, which, if those of you who don't know, is 
tucked away from a lot of other big cities like the nearest city to us is five hours away in that salt lake city um we're kind of in the middle of the desert um but no like a a wrath boise has been my one realm i haven't really been in any other realms um and i've only been in one unit which is also very unique for belagarth where you normally when you grow through your career you kind of cycle through a few different units you grow you figure things out but um when i get picked up for the brotherhood of the falcon which is um a national unit um it was my home it was it was decidedly and easily the place i knew where i wanted to be and that's where i've been these last you know 12 years and i'm glad that you were able to find something that worked i know some people who go through their entire careers without being able to find a a unit that really fits them or that they really fit into so i mean the fact that you were able to uh, slide right into one almost immediately Oh, that's outstanding. I, I'm sure that kind of gave you the room to work on other things. You weren't so worried about, you know, okay, what unit am I going to be a part of and the various, you know, dramas and intrigues that go with that. Boom, that was already figured out. So, I mean, from what I could see, that means you can kind of shift your energies, right? Uh, yeah, I think you actually kind of hit on a really good point is that, you know, I never had to worry about, is this unit right for me? Am, am The people am I with, are they the people that I want to be associated with and um, really kind of when we look at this in a retrospective, learn from, right? Because, you know, when you talk about leadership, when you talk about learning and in a growth environment, you want to surround yourself with people who are knowledgeable and people you want to emulate. And um, I just happened to be very lucky and stumble upon um, Brotherhood when they were in a high growth period, um, when I was brand new and fresh and uh, you know, really raring to go. And um, they had this semblance of meaning and purpose and direction about them. And I really gravitated towards that and soaked up as much as I could, um, you know, in the first three, four years of me being in the sport. Yeah. And I, I remember when you joined up and thinking, um, you know, that that's interesting. You know, you were a fairly newer fighter still at that point. Um if I'm recalling correctly. And like you said, the Brotherhood was doing a, a lot of influx and it was one of those things of like, huh, you know, and, and then I watched you kind of connect with it and then like immediately run with it. And it was like, yeah, he's, that's his spot. He, he found it, that's it. <laughs> you know, it's funny looking back on it. It's just one of those things where you're right. It was a click. It just clicked instantaneously and without really any kind of... um knowledge in my mind because i didn't have the perspective at that time right i didn't really have the full worldly belagarth perspective uh but looking back on it like i recognize how um lucky i was you know to be recognized by that group and and picked up as a potential oh sure yeah i mean um i mean it took i'm i'm uh i'm trying as well as the listeners know i talk about dark angels all the time (laughs) um and I mean, it took me forever to get there. I started DGMA and then I jumped over to the Urukai and then the Forsaken and then Vorshin. And then, you know, I was, I was all over the place, like searching for a, the place where I kind of belonged. And all these places had good people, right? They, they all had people that I really enjoyed hanging out with, but it was, it was missing that certain je ne sais quoi. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I found the Dark Angels and it was very similar, but I had to wait, you know, what, um, 15 years <laughs> to find them. Um, whereas you were lucky, like you said, and, and just kind of slid into the right spot right out of out right out of the gate. Yeah, and like I, I really want to press any anyone who's listening on this how unusual 
that is i'm very much i recognize how much of an unusual person i am and um you know it's good for people to look and make sure that they find the places that they fit in you know i just i I really just happen to find the people that i gravitated the most to right away Mm -hmm. sure when you had mentioned when you were talking about it that part of what inspired you uh, about the unit and what one of the things you liked about it was the um, the good leadership that you experienced. And I've also seen that. Like the Brotherhood of the Falcon are everywhere. And if there's an event that they are at, it is fairly typical that they're involved in some way, whether it's you know weapons check or you know field stuff or administrative things. Like the Brotherhood typically are involved and they do have really good leaders in a lot of places. Um, when you were coming up, did any of these leaders like particularly uh, speak to you or any of them like mentors or inspirations to you? Uh, you know, the funny thing is, uh, I would say that everyone kind of had something to bring to the table in varying degrees. And again, you know, I was very in a moldable, (laughs) you know, mindset. I'm very new, never done LARP before, right? Like I've never been in this kind of group experience where you have this combination of a hobby and also... Um, this sense of family and belonging at the same time. Like, you know, I think the closest to that I might have had was Boy Scouts, but um, I enjoy LARP a lot much more than I enjoy Boy Scouts. So um, really, you know, Parr was a a really large inspiration. And I know, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with him to some degree. Uh, Robin, um, you know, Cheryl, Araya, like I had, you know, even people who were pledging at the same time with me and we pushed ourselves to become better, um, you know, during our pledging process. So it was, it was this large group synergy that really pushed every single person to, you know, be good, to try to bring good things into the realm, into the sport, into the community, um, and it was just kind of like this weird, like, you know, nostalgia probably has something to do with it, but it was kind of a golden age in my mind where everyone had the time and energy and opportunity and drive to accelerate their own development and the community's development. Um, and it was just, it was really neat. It was just a really great part to experience, um, you know, people having the time to do that. So I, I would say everyone, like there's, there's quite a few leaders out there, um, but I, I, that specific experience, I'd say it was just everyone, everyone was there and helping each other out. Well, that's always wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful when you have a, you know, a whole group that is building each other up, that helps each other shine and really feeds into each other positively. It's far too easy to go the other direction, whether it may, you know, just distracting one another from something or full on being a negative experience or, or negative feeding into that group. But what you had going on between not just the vets that you were interacting with, but also the the newer people that you were coming up with was, like you say, the shared sense of community, ownership, and kind of drive to not just push each other, but also make each other better, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that looking back on it and reflecting more, that that's really what it felt like. Um, and there's also, there's also a mentality in, in Brotherhood that I really latched on to, and it's the concept of... Um, always try to strive to improve the place that you uh, found. So essentially, you know, like make, make it better. You show up, you're there. How do you make it better when you leave? Um, and that that simple concept um, 
being drilled into like the core of the unit and you know obviously the drive of a lot of the people that you know i grew up in the sport with um has stayed with me this the, to, to this day like you know how do you improve the conditions of the place that you started in um you know before you leave i agree i 110 percent agree and i think if more people had that sort of philosophy when approaching a, a community or a sport or what have you we would probably live in a a much cleaner world, if not a, a probably a much better world too, I would think. <laughs> yeah, if anything, yes, a much cleaner world, no doubt, you know, but um, it's it's a simple concept and I think that's why I gravitated to it a lot. It's easy to understand and I think anyone who's in a community, um, sport, organization, you know, what have you, whether it's in person or online, right? Like if you are invested in this community and you want to watch it grow and and thrive then that that single concept will drive forward a lot of that progress when i think having that same drive like you said you're looking for people that have a similar passion for making things better for being involved in the same way and having this kind of unity of thought i would think gives you a good disposition like when the bof take to the field I would think that, you know, the, just the culture, the unit culture that y'all have means that as a general rule, you're taking to the field in, in good spirits with good gear and, and prepared to give good sport. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. And I'll be the first to recognize that, you know, we're all human and it's hard to, to always live up to that standard. But if you have that standard and you strive to match it every time you could do go out and do it, then that, that's what it needs to be, right? That's what needs to exist. Um, you know, just kind of like with anything, you know, we want to have goals, we want to have aspirations, we want to have concepts or ethos or ethics to follow. And, you know, uh, if we don't match it, then we'll say, that, well, that's what we need to match. That's what we need to do. And, uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, that, I mean, that sounds perfect. But so you have this, this culture off field. And of course, mm -hmm. again, we're talking about being human. Is there anything that y'all do before you go on field to kind of bring that that unity together? I know for, for the DA, oftentimes we've uh, done 2v1s before we go onto the field. That was something that was pretty common when I've hung out with the DA is is sitting there and you do 2v1s as a warm-up and it kind of gets us all into this 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 headspace, this like equal headspace because we're doing the same activity. Is there anything like that with the BOF? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it changes throughout the years depending on, um, you know, the presence of members and the accessibility and availability, you know, we, we all live life. So, you know, not everything's going to be the same all the time. But the one big consistent really is, you know, as Brotherhood, we do get together as a unit and we, we, we have um, uh, essentially a chat. You know, we bring people together and we say, hey, let's check in. How are we doing? How's everyone doing? How, you know, what's life, what's going on with life? What's a, what's a good win that's going on with your life that you want to share with everyone right now? Um, yeah. You know, so we're touching base with each other and, uh, you know, we're making sure that we all know kind of what's going on in each other's lives and we celebrate the small victories and the big victories together in this moment. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we share from some passages that we've, we've made to kind of bond the unit together Um you know, as this common core, this common sticking point of the concepts of, of brotherhood, you know, kind of like 
like a passage almost right so we kind of do that and then yeah you know 2v1s is very common for brotherhood you know we're a fighting well let me rephrase that we we are a fighting unit and also we accept non-coms and do our and do our and do our unit so we're not just a fighting unit but like you know really big about um field unity and field presence so yeah 2v1s are very common um discussions on how best to approach things so you know we do have a very field forward mindset um you know, it's a little hard to kind of bring back exactly a lot of the commonalities that we used to do because it's been two years in a pandemic, right? So, um, and we're, we're kind of seeing Belagarth step timidly outside of the pandemic zone and seeing how how uh, practices and events work again in this new lifestyle that we have. But yeah, that's that's kind of what we do. We bond in a lot of different ways, I guess, for lack of better terms. You know, we, we bond with fighting, we bond with communicating, we bond with hanging out, and... Um, you know, all of that uh, translates into where we go together as a unit. And that's a fairly common thing. Like we've had a lot of people on this show that talk about, you know, having having really good field presence, having good teamwork out there, but having a huge portion of that occur off field. You know, that's that's training stuff. That is that is organization and work that, you know, personal work, community work that is done before you even hit the field, because once we're on the field, it's too late. You know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever happened off field, whatever habits we may have had or communications we had, that's now the past. And what we have is what we have. And so, I mean, when we go onto the field with the best that we can, when we're feeling good about each other, you know, when you guys are you know, touching base and making sure to be a positive part of each other's lives, that brings together a brotherhood. I mean, literally, like, it's not just the name of the unit, but it feels like what you're actually striving for. Yeah. And that's the goal, right? We're striving for this concept, right? And... Um, you know, just like anyone else, just like any other unit, just like any other community, just like any other organization, right? You're going to have, you know, highs and lows in that. But as long as you continue to strive to meet this expectation you have, right, then that's, that's what's important. Um, you know, kind of the big takeaway here is that, you know, we have those things there for a reason and we try to strive to meet them every day. Well, and it's, it's an excellent philosophy and it works out well for you because you're certainly not hurting for membership. How many, how many are in the brotherhood right now? Mm, I'd say probably an active 50 or so, 50 or 60. It's really tough to determine numbers right now because the pandemic is still affecting some folks, um, you know, and life changes that happen after not fighting for two years or being as active in the community for a few years. But I think it's around like 50 to 60 or so. At, at this point in time, yeah. And you're spread over a large geographic area, too. It's not just, you know, you're not just in Idaho there. It's all oh, no. over the place. Yeah, all over the place. Yeah, we have a large presence on the western and eastern side of the Belagarth scene, especially eastern. Eastern is where a bulk of our brethren membership is. Yeah. So how do you organize that? Because when we're dealing with a larger conventional force, it is hard enough to say, okay, well, this division does this, this division does this. But when you're dealing with a large disparate force, which comes together relatively infrequently and with unknown numbers, again, we don't necessarily know who is all going to be showing up, or at least most of the time. Um, But again, it's a very large unit. Mm-hmm. How do you organize that? How do you how do you uh, make sure that when you take to the field, there's not a lot of confusion going on? Yeah, um, you know, just like any kind of military organization, right? You have rank structure, and Brotherhood really focuses on um, pushing the concept of a rank structure within our unit. 
So whenever either we're looking on the field or off the field, if we're looking for leadership, guidance, expectations to be set, um, you know, you look to the individuals that have higher rank. And that rank isn't based on tenure. That rank isn't based on popularity. That rank is based on um, how much have you put into brotherhood. Um, you know, there's, there's there's a whole conversation that goes along with it, but the concept is, you know, those who put in and want to be in those spots, you know, are recognized and placed in those positions of leadership to help guide everyone else. Um, so just like any other military rank structure, so, you know, <laughs> common example, you know, either uh, people who live out west, the Brotherhood goes to out east, or east comes out west, right? Because that's, you know, there's a divide down the center geographically. Um, you know, it's not difficult to get our bearings either on the field or off the field because we know who's running it. Uh, we know who the rank structure is, um, and we know who to listen to for guidance, right? So um, it, it's fairly it's fairly easy, and as long as everyone abides by the concept of that rank structure, then for the most part, everything goes swimmingly. Obviously, you're going to have maybe not as keen synergy on the field, or you know, you have to talk to some people you've never met before, you know, off the field, and kind of get an idea who they are. You know, you you hear about these people, but you haven't really hung out with them in any official capacity. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're bonded together by this idea of chosen family, chosen unit, um, you know, and that's that's a wonderful starting point for us to build a relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, and that consistent ranking structure helps, too, because I know a lot of different units may be spread out all over the place and they come together and you're going to have different area people in different areas who have levels of popularity. You know, you may have somebody who is a part of the same unit in the southeast who is a, a large amount of following. They not might may not be like an official leader, but they're very popular and people are used to following them anyways. And here comes somebody from another region, perhaps the actual leader or whatever, but because you have this disparity and maybe not the, the rigid rank structure, because I really like that. Honestly, um, it was one of the things that made me really think about going brotherhood because I'm mm -hmm. ex-military and I love ranks. Mm. Oh, I love them. <laughs> of course, then I go into the DA where there are no ranks. We have no leaders, no gods, no masters. Um, <laughs> the complete, the opposite, the complete opposite of, <laughs> of what your initial drive was for. That's fair. The the warrior hippie commune of Belagarth. Um, Good cousins. Yeah. Yes. Hey, cousin. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, I, I I really like that because like you said, you can come from a lot of different areas because, you know, the Brotherhood's very large. You may only have like 50 or 60 people who are active now, but I remember pre-pandemic, y'all had numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, those numbers, you know, still very well might exist, uh, you know, once, once people feel more comfortable and, you know, are able to sort their life back around Bell again, um, you know, if that's their their job but at the end of the day right it's really nice because we can defer to individuals higher than us if we have questions concerns or thoughts that need to be addressed right so it just creates really nice cohesion across the board um the only thing is that people need to trust it right just like right. any system just like any system right there's no perfect system if trust doesn't follow so no absolutely um so in, in terms of like the, the numeric responsibilities here, is there, is there like a, a system for determining for how many people you need this many things? Because I would imagine if you had like, you know, pre-pandemic, if there were a lot of officers and not as many people who were 
And, and, you know, there were a lot of enlisted too, but a bunch of the enlisted guys left and all you're left with is a bunch of officers. At which point do you say, okay, you know, we only need this number of this rank for this amount of people that we have or, or you know, so on and so forth. Mm. If I understand your question correctly, um, I don't, I don't believe I was ever privy to how the number scheme actually worked, but it, it was to ensure that there was a lesser number from a top-down sense, right? So you had one commanding officer and then you had like two lieutenants and then you had three sergeants and you had four corporals, right? Like that's just the best breakdown possible. Um, so if you did need to defer, you know, higher, right, you're not also scrambling with, you know, 15 different people to have that conversation with. Um, and also, you know, you need to consider it, uh, as like a field breakdown too, <laughs> right? So, you know, if you have more corporals and you know your top dog gets knocked out of the fight right off the bat then you're like okay cool well i have four corporals still so you know <laughs> take the take the lead take the bus let's go um yeah but uh i wasn't really privy to, to the full breakdown of the rank structure was that answering your question yeah it absolutely it was just a curiosity as i was i was just sitting here thinking about it being like huh how, how do they divide that up to be like okay how many people need to be in an area to warrant however many officers or or anything because if you like if everybody who was left in was just kind of like all right there's a bunch of captains and one general um hmm i think we need some more privates around here <laughs> yeah i mean it's definitely you know you do want to consider how many people are in the local area and then what the local rank structure does look like right so um so you know that that's a something to consider as well but i don't think they ever stopped i and like i said it, it, this is this is my new perspective right um of being the lieutenant out west now is that I, I don't I wasn't ever privy, but I don't think they ever stopped the the idea of, of letting someone go up the rank because there was like too many of X person, right? Um, but that's just my interpretation pre pre LT pre being in the position of the rank structure that I am. It was very much like well, you put the work in, and your recommendation came through and it's approved, right? So. Well, and that, that's a meritocracy right there. And, and that was one of my big issues with the army is that time and grade was one of the most big determining factors on who got to, you know, wear the big britches there. So like my staff sergeant, when I was in, you know, he way outranked me, but he didn't do anything ever. Mm -hmm. And again, and, you and know, so that's... Was... go ahead, go ahead. Oh. My apologies. Oh, I, I was just going to finish with it was it was kind of insulting to be somebody who was you know, really high speed was, was out there and was really trying to contribute the best I could to my fort and to have, you know, this person who was supposedly more vetted than I was and supposedly more invested than I was, you know, kind of kicking his feet up and waiting for his, waiting for his term to be over. It just, it wasn't very inspiring. That's understandable. Yeah. And I mean, in reality, you know, we're looking at this through the lens of the concept of what we want it to be through Belgar, through a hobby, you know, through a system that we choose to be in, right? The military, you know, it, we can talk all day long if that's a chosen system or not, but like you're stuck in the system at that point, right? Like hard to kind of kick back about it and be like, you know, well, can we change it? But um, I think the really important thing to consider is, especially people in wargaming communities, right? Because that's, that's kind of where we're talking to a little bit is if you are in a situation where, you know, you feel that the rank structure that you're under is either, you know, not great or that people aren't listening to you or, you know, you might have an issue with who's 
being promoted to what, right? Like having those discussions, you know, expressing um, where your concerns lie, right? And seeing how people respond to you are really, really important um, to determine, you know, where you want to be and, and what you want to do about it. I, I know it's kind of a little long-winded and a little bit vague and a little circular here, but like, you know, at the end of the day, if you have an opportunity to change the system and audit it and, you know, have people really reflect on, is this how the system was meant to be, right? Is this what we wanted to do with the system in the first place? Or has it become something else, right? That's that's worth pause. That's worth a reflection on. Uh, I know it's a little off track here, but that, that's kind no, of the point I, I want to make. I would agree. And, and like you said, like once you sign on that dotted line, it's no longer a matter of choice. You now belong to the government. You're yeah. literally government <laughs> property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that there, there's, no, there's no democracy. The army is not a democracy. No. Um, whereas, like you said, like if we're wanting retention and if we're wanting people to have a good time, we have to make sure that, like I said, with the rank structure that you have, it sounds very efficient, but you also have to make sure that it's not killing people's good time. Yeah, and that's the balance, right? Like that's that's kind of the balance that we're looking for here. Um, at least in my mind, you know, in the perspective and in the situation and in and, and the position that I'm in in leadership, right? Is that, um, you know, I'm going to try some things and if they don't work out, then, you know, um, then I'll, I'll look back and reflect upon it and then really collect and see what people didn't like about it and what I want to do next moving forward. That still tries to match my goal, my ethics, my interests for what I want to see, you know, my unit, my community you know, my people, uh, where they want, where I want them to be, you know, the goals I have in mind for them. Um, but you know, if I see kickback, like I need to, I need to really take that into consideration. I really, really do. And, um, you know, that's what I would hope out of any kind of wargaming community out of any kind of leadership or delegation position is, you know, you will have goals like at the end of the day, but it's really, really, really important to see how you go about those goals and how the people under you or with you, your peers, right. React to them. Um, react to your methods to reaching those goals um, and then adjust as you go along or, um, you know, take a pause and, and take stock and recognize it was just really, you know, the best way to go about it. Um, you know, I think anyone who <laughs> works in a management position, you know, or is actually not even, in a, you know, I'm going to break that down. Anyone who's had a job, Anyone who's had a job, anyone who's had a leader above them or been a leader in a job like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Something has to be done. Let's see how the leader handles it. And if they listen to the folks below them, right? No, I, I agree 110%. Yeah. I mean, it has to, it's a two-way street, right? Like mm -hmm. a leader is only a good leader if they're supported by the people that they're leading. And the only way that's going to happen is if they're a good leader, Right. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that feeds into itself. And really, it just means take care of your people, like you're saying. Yeah, I really um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but there's a, a, there's a thought leader. I think that's the actual title called Simon Sinek um, uh, that I really enjoy. Um, he has a video about the concept of leadership and how it works in human society, where essentially if you're not providing right for the people that you're supposed to be looking over then you're you're inherently going to be rejected because that's the whole like innate concept of leadership is that you look over these folks and you have this position of privilege because people invest trust in you but if you do not invest back 
into the people you know that you look under then you will have you know um trust issues your leadership will you know get holes in it right if you don't do anything they, they're trying to fix it so well you, you hit the nail on the head too i mean this whole like quote-unquote alpha concept is inherently flawed one mm -hmm. because the person who did the study on the wolves that came up with the idea of the alpha concept came back the next year with a study that said that was wrong <laughs> that what they thought was an alpha system in there was actually just the parents it wasn't mm -hmm. the alpha male and the alpha female it was mom and dad mm -hmm. and that's why they were in charge yeah <laughs> So, it's, but, but of course that idea had already taken off. And even with that, like we're primates, you know, we're, we're not canines. And so when you look at other primates, when you look at gorillas or you look at chimpanzees, yeah, the, the leaders, not the strongest necessarily, but the ones that people follow, the ones who are actually in charge, they're the ones who provide. They're mm -hmm. the ones who are doing the social groomings and they're the ones who are, um, you know, in the case of bonobos doing other things. Or, you know, they're bringing in food. Like, they're, they're the ones who are being active members of the community and positively engaging, taking care of people. And like you said, then people are like, well, I, I like this guy. I want to keep hanging out with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think you, it's a really good idea to bring in the concept of alpha and how flawed that is. Because, you know, I think that people take that concept and try to instigate it in their leadership where you have to be top dog. You have to be hyper aggressive. You have to be... Um, not necessarily hyper masculine but like you know all the negative connotations that potentially come with that to be a leader when in reality it's it, it's all it can be a lot softer than that you know sure. you can have a more aggressive leader for sure and be successful but you don't have to be um and the largest takeaway you should have from being a leader and there's a lot of schools on thought on leadership but it's really providing back for the the group that looks up to you right because it's a two-way street um and I think that's a, a great concept to bring in mind, you know, for those who are familiar with knighthood and Belagarth and, um, you know, just the, the bit of the nugget epiphany that my knight gave me when I was still a squire that kind of like blew my mind. It's very obvious now, but it blew my mind <laughs> when we were talking about it one late chaos evening, right? He looked me square in the eyes and he said, Rem, like there's plenty of knights out there that aren't knighted, right? You they do nightly things. They go help the community. They grow the sport. They're good people, right? They're knights. They just don't have a belt and chain, right? And it's the same concept of leadership. You don't need the position of being a leader to be a leader, right? The position helps, but it is not the station that makes people follow you, right? It's your actions. It's how you interact with them. It's your shared goals, right? Um, and that's kind of the breakdown, right? Is you don't, you don't need the position of power to do the things that leaders do. Well, because it's not a, like to be a good leader at the end of the day, it's not about ego. Mm -hmm. It's not about us. It's not about, you know, our glory. It's not about what we accomplish. It's about what we can do for the people who are, who are responsible for ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so if a leader is selfless, that inspires other people to actually, be a part of the system because they're like, oh, he's a part of this or she's a part of this. This person, you know, isn't above lording over, but I feel a, a, like, you know, I'm a part of this with that person. Yeah. Shared goals, shared goals, yeah. shared aspirations, right? You find common ground with the people that you're under or your peers, right? And, you know, having these shared goals together really helps instill like 
the reason and the purpose for doing the things you do. And it makes everyone feel like that their investment matters and counts. And I think that's a really big thing that, that might hit on some people, right? Whether you're in a, you know, a community, um, or, or otherwise is that if the person doesn't have the same shared interest as I for seeing the end result of the community I'm in, then it's really hard for me to follow them. Right. If we're not on the same page about what we want that end goal to look like. And that's important. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I think anybody who's listening would probably agree too. That's a, yeah, that seems to be a, a truth of life, but, uh, Rem, I, I'm sorry, but we've come to the end of our time here, and <laughs> I'm I'm bummed. I know we're about we're about five minutes over right now, and I'm like, maybe I can just squeeze a few more minutes. No, I, I should probably you know stop while we're ahead. But I, I <laughs> Rem, thank you so much for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure, Mark. It's uh, and, good to hear from you, my friend. It's been so long. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely, and I'm I definitely want to. This has been fantastic, and I would love to have you on again in the future if you're if you're up for it. Yeah, um, I'd be honored. Because again, like I th- I think that uh, you were the per- one of the perfect people to select for this uh, this episode on division and disposition. <laughs> you're again too kind, my friend. You are too kind. Thank you. Well, thank you again, and and for the rest of us, we're gonna uh, call it quits for now. But we're looking forward to seeing y'all next episode. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, fried squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>